The people of Israel groaned under their bondage and cried out for help, and their cry under bondage came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew their condition. That was a passage from Exodus chapter 2, and this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a weekly look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Well, it's great to be back with you. Today, we begin Ignacio Correa's chapter of Mysterium Liberationis, The Historicity of Christian Salvation. And it is a big topic. Correa takes about 50 pages to address it, making it one of the longer chapters in the book. But we will break it down in the next two episodes into its basic parts. And in this first part, relate it to events in the life of Aeacharia himself, since, as we will see, Aeacharia contends that Christian salvation is deeply tied up in the personal and social history of humanity, with dimensions that transcend the life of Jesus 2,000 years ago, continuing into the present. And to do so, I'll be taking some information from a book I would highly recommend, Blood and Ink. Ignacio Correa, John Sabrino, and the Jesuit Martyrs of the University of Central America by Robert LaSalle Klein, published by Orbis in 2014. And I'll also explain why Correa is a personal hero of mine, a role model of what a Jesuit in higher education should be about. So getting started with the text, Aeacharia states at the outset that the problem of the historicity of salvation remains at the center of controversy. There's a grave need to get it right, and to do so, we first have to make a distinction, that between the historical character of salvific events and the salvific character of historical events. And all that sounds a little crazy. <laughs> that I love when people invert the, the terms and then give them different meanings, and it just kind of boggles your mind. But anyways, the, the historical character of salvific events refers to the fact that the salvific events of the Christian faith, which are the incarnation, the passion, and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, they took place in space and time. In one way, this question is one for the historical critical method, which examines, you know, what can we know about the history of these events through scientific historical study? And in another way, this question is one of history versus story. How literally are we to take the events of the Bible, some of which are presented as historical facts, but also are presented as an interpretation of historical facts from the perspective of faith? What is God's activity in history? And how are we to distinguish between what happened in history and then how people of faith interpret the events of history. 
And it kind of makes me think in a way of a few weeks ago, I went to the Creation Museum in Kentucky. And here I am in Cincinnati and the Creation Museum is just about 30 minutes away from Cincinnati. And I went there with some family members uh, just to kind of see what it was all about. I knew that down the road they had kind of a a real size uh, recreation of Noah's Ark. And anyway, this uh, Creation Museum. And as I was going through it, not only did the Creation Museum take very literally the story of creation in Genesis, uh, which of course, as we know, is actually two stories, but they really took almost everything in the Bible very literally. And so you know, what are we to make of that? Are we to interpret the Bible in that way? Is really the Bible, you know, some events happen and then later people are reflecting on it uh, in the light of their faith and seeing, okay, how would we interpret this as, as part of our history with God? So what's that all about? Well, these questions are certainly very important and complex, and maybe thankfully for us, Aeacharia does not choose to explore them in this text. He is rather more interested in the second part of the distinction, the salvific character of historical events. And he sees liberation theology as an answer to this question of the salvific character of historical events. It's Liberation theology is really a wholesale interpretation of the meaning of salvation as liberation understood in terms of the reign of God. And so salvation as liberation, you know, what is salvation history? It's a history of liberation, integral liberation. And really what we're going to explore this topic in more detail in this upcoming chapter, chapter Liberty and Liberation, in which uh, Juan Luis II goes into why liberation theologians basically see the terms salvation and liberation as coterminous, interchangeable in the Bible. But um, that, that will come. But basically for now, <laughs> the idea is that liberation theology comes from a Christian place. And this Christian place means the life, death, and resurrection of the historical person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ inaugurated, preached, and lived the reign of God which uh, liberation theologians interpret as kind of the primary reality of the Christian faith, the ultimate reality, the goal, the, the purpose of Jesus. So in liberation theology's answer to this question about, you know, what's the salvific character of historical events, there is a clarification of a traditional problem in Christian theology, which is the relationship between the human and the divine. Aeacharia thinks that, quote, a long intellectual elaboration carried out over the centuries has led to the conceptual separation between what appears in biographical and historical experience to be the same thing, end quote. And he means that the true understanding of the relationship between God and humanity has been obscured by intellectual categories that do not conform to Christian re revelation to the Bible and, in fact, are employed by the powerful. And so, you know, naturally, we're going to approach the Bible from a certain philosophical context or worldview. But, you know, that's one thing. Another thing is to lockstep interpret things in the Bible in line with a certain philosophy. So, for example, the other day I was speaking a little bit on social media about we read the Acts of the Apostles and there's what is the early Christian communities doing? They're shunning private property. They're, they're pooling their resources and redistributing them according to need. 
So if we read that passage and and we're we're trying to reconcile it in some way with say John Locke's conception of private property, we're going to we're going to run into some some difficulties here. But the fact of the matter is that many times the rich and powerful will use an interpretation of the Bible basically to support the philosophy that they have, a philosophy that serves their interests. And how do the powerful create craft a philosophy or theology of the human and divine to fit their interests. I think in general, two approaches are taken. Either first, they claim that the relationship between God and humanity is mediated through them, that the grace of God flows through them from the top down. And so basically what theology does in the end at, at the political economic level is reinforces those who are currently in power, reinforces the status quo, right? But there's also a second approach that the rich and powerful can take, which we see this one as well, that there there's a firm distinction between God and humanity such that God is largely uninterested in human affairs like society, economics, and politics. And since that's the case, people should seek transcendence in religious activities alone. And this second approach conserves the dominant class's power by default. If the true meaning of human affairs is subsumed in the infinite eternal matters of God, then there's no need to make history but only to escape from it, taking refuge in contemplation and worship. And this kind of mentality may be one of the reasons why Marx describes religion as an opiate, because the oppressed, given this sort of theology, see comfort in religion. You know, that God is not so interested in the affairs of this world. God, for one reason or another, has allowed the powerful to be powerful, the rich to be rich, the poor to be poor, the powerless to be powerless. And so you have to kind of accept your lot and then put your faith in a future salvation in the afterlife. And so what this does, it also gets in the way of any kind of relationship between theology and revolutionary movements because of this strict separation between the human and the divine. In the face of those two ideologies, really, of the divine-human relationship, there's the approach of liberation theology, which centers the experience of Christians who participate in the people's struggle, who, compelled by their faith and as an objective realization of their faith, seek to make human action correspond as much as possible to God's will. And these folks see through these two rhetorics of God is the same as the rich and powerful or God is uninterested in questions of earthly power. They, they see through that and they know that it's just a rhetoric of power and of escapism. They know that there's more unity between the human struggle for their freedom and history and salvation history than their oppressors would like to admit. They even see their oppressors' faith as scandalous. How could it be that atheistic communists are working for liberation, but so many churchmen are not? In some cases, these churchmen are even actively opposing it. And they know that if your theology is not leading you to actively work for a freer and more just world, then perhaps your, your theology is just an ideology reinforcing your privilege. 
In light of this pervasive problem, one that, that Louis Althusser has framed as the state ideology dominating the ecclesial ideological apparatus, Aeacharia says we need a better understanding of the meaning of transcendence. And he dedicates several paragraphs to transcendence, which we might think, well, isn't that what he's trying to avoid? Well, Aeacharia wants to salvage the term transcendence, but just define it differently. He writes, Quote, there are not two histories, a history of God and human history, a sacred history and a profane history. Rather, there is a single historical reality in which both God and human beings intervene so that God's intervention does not occur without some form of human participation and human intervention does not occur without God's presence in some form. Here's the thing that I want to highlight. What doesn't belong to God? What doesn't come from God? Well, everything belongs to God and everything comes from God except for sin. So given that fact, why are we drawing arbitrary distinctions between the sacred and the profane? It almost goes in line with the spirituality of St. Ignatius of Loyola finding God in all things. God is there in all things. Maybe in a special way, God is present through the sacramental forms, but really God is in all things. There's no place where God is not. And so this distinction between the natural and the supernatural, the profane and the sacred, really does fall apart from an honest theological analysis that says, you know, God is, is really everywhere and active in all things except for in sin. So the problem with the definition of transcendence, which, which wants to draw these kind of lines between sacred, profane, uh, natural, supernatural, the problem with this definition of transcendence is that it's defined as separate, especially as separate from history. But it's better, Aeacharia says, to see transcendence in, not transcendence from. So transcendence does not abandon the human, but goes deeper, or if you'd like, higher. And Aeacharia cites three common Christian examples, Jesus, the church, and the Bible. Jesus is human. He existed in time and in space. He was born, he grew up, he did things, he suffered, and he even died. And in all this, Jesus was God. The church, likewise, exists in history as a profane entity, yet it is holy and it has a mystical mission. You know, we have Pope Francis, who is a human being, and there's, there's transcendence in him. All right. And then also we have the Bible. The Bible is a book written by human hands, but within its pages, we find the word of God. In all of these cases, God works through what is human. And in Jesus, God is human. Aeacharia says he could choose any number of examples like church, Bible, Jesus, on which he could expand his thesis and explain the divinity, the transcendence in the humanity and springing forth from the humanity. Yet in this text, he wants to look at the Bible, first at the Old Testament, then at the New Testament. And he does this to address a common issue that some folks raise with liberation theology. Some folks say it's more 
Old Testament tea than New Testament tea. And we need to clarify that from Air Korea's perspective, we cannot resolve this problem by just waving a wand and getting rid of the human flesh history in the Old Testament. We can't just spiritualize it. And likely, we can't just look at the New Testament and then see Jesus's humanity and then just throw it away, you know, and focus on his divinity. Rather, if we give an honest look we see that in both cases, old and new, we find spirit and flesh, God and history, and they're inseparably linked. Before proceeding on to the Old Testament, let's begin with the story of Ignacio Eacuria. Born in the Basque country, not far from Bilbao in 1930, Eacuria joined the Jesuits at the age of 17, and only two short years later was missioned to El Salvador, where he lived and worked for the next 42 years, apart from some periods of study in Germany where he met the influential Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner, and Spain, where he worked with the influential Catholic philosopher Javier Subiri. And following his Jesuit formation, his studies, and his first assignments, uh, Eucaria was heavily involved in a paradigm shift in the Central American province of the Society of Jesus. And this shift led to a similar shift at the Central American University in San Salvador, founded in 1965. In the wake of Vatican II and the Medellin Bishops' Conference in the 1960s, the Central American Jesuits participated in a discernment retreat in 1969 that would mark the direction of the personal and structural renewal of the province. A survey at this retreat revealed that most Jesuits in Central America were happy with their Jesuit life, aside from the question of poverty. Most Jesuits in Central America at that time felt that the Jesuits were ministering to the rich at the expense of the poor. This reality did not fit with the Jesuit superior general Pedro Arupe's option for the poor expressed in a classic uh, interview in which he says, quote, The Society of Jesus has decided to dedicate itself to the world of the poor and recognizes the necessity for structural change, end quote. The conclusion of this time of prayer and conversation was a communal, province-wide commitment to the redemption and liberation of Central America, which means putting the works of the province at the service of the poor. The UCA, the Central American University, began to integrate this new horizon for its work in 1970, a process that would take a decade to articulate and even more to implement. And for now, I want to highlight the unity of the divine and the human in these first phases of Eucharist's life. If we take for granted that the paradigm shift towards the liberation of the oppressed in Jesuit ministry in Central America that I just described is the work of God, which it is, <laughs> then how is it achieved? By what means did God's work occur? Well, through humanity, <laughs> through human means surveys, studies, conversations, and yes, of course, through prayer. Though prayer not removed from these surveys, studies, and conversations, but in service of discerning what of God is in them. There's the transcendence, the work of God within the human, deepening the human, lifting up the human, indicating that this human movement is one of grace, of God's blessing. Mm -hmm. 
just as we can ask the question, who brought the Central American Jesuits to this conclusion, them or God? We can ask the question with respect to the Old Testament. Who brought the people out of Egypt, God or Moses? In short, we can say that God doesn't set the people free without Moses, nor Moses without God. Likewise, indistinctly, we can say that the Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The principal actor in the Exodus event is God, and Moses is the arm of God. Aea makes four further observations about the Exodus event. He says, first, the Exodus is a historical event. Second, it's a salvific event of transcendent importance. Third, Moses is a human being who uses human and political means. And fourth, yet Israel does not doubt that God is the one doing the liberating. And to synthesize all of this, he writes, quote, Human history is held up as the privileged arena in which to show the transcendent eruption of God as an unforeseeable novelty that opens human contingency to divine hope. Human experience does not close in on itself, but is open to the hope of divine intervention, end quote. Let me put it in more simple terms. God intervenes in human history, and human beings collaborate with God's intervention. The possibility of God's intervention in history means that, though we are limited as human beings, we can transcend our limitations with God's help. As such, in Exodus, God intervenes in the historical reality of Hebrew captivity. Moses and others collaborate with God in this intervention, and the result is a moving beyond the historical limitation of Hebrew slavery due to God's help. In the Exodus event, and really in the Bible as a whole, we see that God acts to change history through human means. History. History as human action at particular times and in particular places. History is the primary locus of God's presence in the Bible. And here, Aechoria busts out some, some serious, fancy theological jargon, calling history the, quote, theophanic locus, end quote. Though God does manifest in nature and in subjective interior experience, so you can look at a flower and see something of God, a sunset, see something of God. You can look inside yourself and turn into a contemplative prayer, and you can find God there. But God principally reveals God's self through historical events in the Christian biblical tradition. And that's why history is the theophanic locus, the principal place where God shows up. This is fundamental for liberation theology, right? God principally reveals who God is and acts through historical events in the Christian biblical tradition. And why? Well, Nature, Aechoria argues, is fixed, and subjective interior experience is, well, subjective. But history is an arena of novelty, of creativity, and it's accessible not just to individuals, but to the people as a collective. And the Bible demonstrates this. It's the story of the people of God. Though there are, of course, passages that speak of God's presence in nature and in personal prayer, the vast majority of the Old Testament is about the history of the people 
of Israel. And Aechoria wants to kind of compare this nature, subjective prayer, and history to philosophers. And he writes, in the history of thought, it was Hegel who opened up history as a place of high admiration. Before, there was Kant, who had written that, quote, the starry skies above and the moral law within, end quote, are the loci of admiration. But Hegel saw the spirit unfolding in history. But before Hegel, the authors of the New and Old Testaments saw the same. We see the threefold dynamic of history. History is past, present, and future. We see this threefold dynamic in the revelation of God to Moses. Eucharia writes, quote, It is the God of the fathers who is seeing the present oppression of God's children in Egypt and who launches them toward a future that will come through God's covenanted promise to God's people, end quote. Note here the anthropocentrism of God's action. God puts God's self at the service of the Hebrew people. God sees their oppression and intervenes so that they can be free. And as an aside, I would note the same thing is true of Jesus. Why did Jesus come? He says, I have come not to be served, but to serve. This is huge. <laughs> there, there is an anthropocentrism to the mission of Jesus. And just as there's an anthropocentrism to the mission of God and Moses. So that's why Eucharia says, quote, the experience of God is subordinated to the saving action of the people. In conjunction with this idea, we see that God does not merely reveal God's name alone in Exodus, for example, but God reveals God's name alongside the descriptor and the context of action that is applied throughout the Old Testament, especially in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. I am the God who led the people out of Egypt. That's what's repeated. I am the God who let the people out of Egypt. So God is revealing who God is and God's name through the context of this action and in service of this action of liberating the Hebrew people. And Aechoria views salvation and liberation, therefore, as material, socio-political, fully real, demonstrable in the first place. And only in a second moment do all of these things appear as the privileged locus of the revelation and presence of God. So on that background of human history, for the purpose of human history and the liberation of the people, God reveals who God is to Moses. That's the context. And we have to take that context seriously. And we can, just to highlight this point even more, let's take the organization of the first chapter of Exodus. First, the author describes the situation of the oppressed Hebrew people in verses 1 through 17. Only in verse 18 is God mentioned for the first time. The material human plane is the foundation on which God works. And when God works, God works with a human, with Moses. And that's why Aechoria brings up some beef that he has. He takes issue with a statement by the International Theological Commission or the ITC. This group of theologians writes that, quote, only from God does salvation come, end quote, and that, quote, 
It's God, not humanity, who changes situations, end quote. And A. Korea, with all due respect, calls out the ITC's error. He says, quote, You can't say that we await a salvation and redemption that comes only from God when Moses and the people play such an important role to neglect or discount the historical dimension of the Hebrew scriptures mutilates God's revelation and detracts from the content of the historical transcendence of the Christian scriptures, end quote. And since we'll be transitioning to the New Testament in a moment, I'd like to add that the ITC may have just kind of forgotten about Jesus, which is unfortunate, because Jesus is fully God and fully human. So why are you making this distinction? All right, uh, saying that it's only God. Even God is a human being in Jesus. And salvation comes from Jesus, fully God, fully human. So and no liberation theologian is arguing that God does not save. So the ITC statement simply is knocking down a straw man and in the process undermining the fact that God changes situations with humanity in collaboration with humanity. And most of all, in Jesus, who is human and divine. Aya Korea and other UCA officials committed to a reorientation of the mission of the university in 1969, but the rubber had to hit the road in the 1970s, and so they developed, as one does, a strategic plan that identified five goals. One, the university must serve everybody, and not just a group of privileged students who become professionals. Second, the university must, must teach and research for the sake of the good of the nation, looking into the structures that influence citizens for good or for ill. Third, the university must make its findings available to the general public, raising national awareness not through moralized preaching, but through conclusive studies, through evidence. And I just want to pause here on this one because this is so important. Because if you have scholars who are doing serious intellectual work, for example, like on liberation, and yet they're only writing for a small group of scholars who are thinking about the same things in journals that are hidden behind a paywall, we've got ourselves a serious problem. Because then what is the purpose of, of education? The purpose of the study of our nation, the study of the social political situation, of people needs to reach the people. All right, so that that's, that number three is a big one. Number four, the university's search for truth must be oriented towards bringing about liberty with justice. And five, the university must restructure itself, qua university, to promote liberation. That is, it must research not only for the good of the nation, but also research what it means to be a university that exists for the common good. So the university itself has to do some soul searching. This way of proceeding was precisely that which would lead to increasing conflict with the Salvadoran state and with the private sector. In 1971, the UCA published documentary evidence of governmental repression of a teacher's strike. In the following year, President Fidel Sanchez Hernandez eliminated the UCA's annual subsidy from the 1972 national budget. Likewise, representatives from the UCA participated in the early 1970s in a Congress on agrarian reform. And when wealthy landowners stormed out of the session and expected the UCA delegates to leave with them, the UCA delegates decided to stay. 
and support the project. So the public and private sectors felt betrayed by the UCA because the church was no longer playing the role of yes-man to the interests of the rich and powerful. And the UCA also piqued the, the fury of another group, the parents of students who complained to the UCA president that their children's education was oriented by the doctrine of class struggle instead of by a Christian spirit. Newspapers published pieces on Marxist professors who were infiltrating the Jesuit school. Despite these pressures, the UCA continued to move in the firm direction of a university in the service of liberation. And for this commitment, pressures turned into threats and threats turned into persecutions. There's a parallel here in the Exodus story. What happened when Moses went to Pharaoh to complain of the Hebrews' oppression and to demand freedom? Pharaoh doubled down on oppression. Pharaoh told his foreman, quote, Let heavier work be laid upon the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to Moses' lying words, end quote. Instead of being given straw with which to work, the Hebrew slaves now had to collect their own straw, increasing their toil substantially. And similarly, when the Uka stood up to the rich and powerful, the rich and powerful removed straw, now funding, making the Uka's work all the more difficult. The work of liberation, indeed, involves suffering, as we see in the life and death of Jesus Christ. We've spent some time with Moses in the Old Testament, and now let's move on to Jesus in the New. But before we get to Jesus, a few general points of orientation. For Aechorea, the Old Testament is indeterminate. As we've said on previous episodes, it is a bit of a failed experiment. The system of judges falls apart, the Davidic monarchy falls apart, and by the New Testament, Israel is a puppet state of the Roman Empire. The freedom of Exodus falls apart over and over again in the Old Testament. On the other hand, the New Testament is definitive. Jesus is the pinnacle of God's revelation, the very gift of God's self to humanity, and Jesus' presence is enduring. I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age, he says. And though the New Testa Testament is definitive, it leaves many things open to the Spirit, the gift of the risen Christ. The Spirit is God's enduring presence, and just as in Genesis, when the Spirit moves over the waters at creation, the Spirit is creative today. Jesus says the Spirit will lead the church into the fullness of truth, and that with the Spirit, the apostles would go on to do things even greater than Jesus himself did. In this way, Jesus is like Moses. Jesus is a new Moses. Moses takes the people out of captivity, but doesn't quite make it to the promised land. He dies before the people enter. Jesus, similarly, takes humanity out of the captivity of evil, sin, and death, but he doesn't take us all the way to the fullness of the reign of God. He dies, resurrects, and ascends before the mission is complete. And after all, look around. Are things perfect yet? Are we living in a heaven on earth? Definitely not. There is still much work to be done, and to help us, Jesus sent us the power of the Holy Spirit. And Aechorea gives a helpful summary of Jesus as the new Moses in the Gospel of John. 
and he gives us five points. One, the Gospel of John, which reaches the highest formulations of the transcendence of Jesus and his divinity, begins by seeing Jesus as a new Moses who would carry out a liberating function with his people. And though I won't go into this now, in the text, Korea points out that the first three miracles of Jesus parallel the first three miracles of Moses. So we're situating from the beginning, even in the Gospel of John, Jesus as this new Moses figure. Second, Jesus would first be presented to his people, in this case, the people of Samaria, as someone who would respond to their need for both religious and historical liberation. Third, this liberation and historical presence of salvation would lead in other directions, in a praxis different from that of Moses, no longer a theocracy, but a force without political power. More on that to come. And this different path that Jesus takes, as opposed to that of Moses, would transform historical reality from the viewpoint of the people, precisely against the powers that presented themselves as theocratic. Fourth, Jesus does not enter into the promised land because of the death and domination of powers of this world. Fifth, in Jesus there is a new definitive presence of God with Christian-specific characteristics. It's curious that Aechorea selects the Gospel of John, though there are so many parallels in the other Gospels as well, the most famous being the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And I suppose that Aechorea wanted to show that even in John, supposedly the most spiritual, otherworldly Gospel, Jesus is also a new Moses, a liberator. And I remember in taking uh, scripture classes in college at Wake Forest University, I had one class that was on the Gospel of Matthew, and I wrote my final paper all about this topic, how Jesus is a new Moses. And I went through the entire book and I highlighted it with my uh, purple highlighter all the passages that were similar to Moses after having read the books of the Old Testament that speak of Moses and uh, seeing what those parallels were. So that's definitely there and what Aechorea is saying is that it's not only there in the synoptic uh, gospels of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also in John as well. We'll remember that Moses acted as a former and leader of a people. He was a sort of founding father of the Hebrew nation. What then is the new people? that Jesus forms and leads, of which Jesus is this founding father figure. There are two directions that Jesus' people take different from that of Moses. Jesus' people, the people of God first, uh, which is the church, is not an Israeli ethnic state, but a universal body. It's international. It is not confined by borders. Second, at which Echorea uh, previously hinted in those five points, the new people of God would not be an imposition from above by the lords of this world. We would not be a theocracy. We would not be a concentration of political power, a specific political party, nor a state. Rather, the locus of the new people of God is the good of the whole world as a whole with a preferential option for the poor. Jesus was simply put, just not interested in becoming another Herod. The story of the new people of God would not be a repeat of the books of Samuel and Kings. The story should be written and would be written by the popular masses, by the oppressed, to whom the reign of God belongs, the reign for which Jesus died and the reign for which we Christians live.
So what happened to the author of this text from Mysterium Liberationis on the historicity of Christian salvation? Where did Aecharia's new vision of the Society of Jesus, new vision of the university, new vision of El Salvador lead him to the events of November 16, 1989? Here's an excerpt from Blood and Ink. At approximately 1 a.m., 300 Salvadoran soldiers operating under the cover of darkness, including at least 100 members of an elite U.S.-trained battalion, surrounded the campus of the Jesuit-run UCA in El Salvador. Having reconnoitered the virtually empty campus around 6.30 p.m., a force of 50 soldiers entered the university through the pedestrian's gate and gathered in the nearby university parking lot. After about 30 minutes, they began shooting up nearby cars and set off at least one grenade, simulating a guerrilla attack. Leaving some of the group in the parking lot, others quietly formed a deadly inner ring, several scampering to the rooftops of neighboring houses and buildings as they tightened the noose around the newly inhabited Jesuit community residence attached to the Archbishop Oscar Romero Center for Theological Reflection. Sleeping unawares inside was Father Eucharia with five other Jesuit priests and unbeknownst to the soldiers, the housekeeper, her daughter, and a woman inhabiting a small dwelling at the rear entrance to the Jesuit community. Once in position, the smaller select group entrusted with the killings began banging on doors, seeking entry to the building at multiple points. 26-year-old Private Oscar Amaya Grimaldi designated the key man and entrusted with the battalion's only AK-47 for the murders, recalls that Father Eucharia came to the balcony in his bathrobe and said, Wait, I am coming to open the door, but don't keep making so much noise. At that moment, another group entered the lower floor of the attached Romero Center, destroying computers, books, and whatever else they found. After about 10 minutes of banging, Father Segundo Montes finally opened the first set of doors and was taken to the front lawn where Father Armando Lopez, Father Ignacio Martin Baró, Father Juan Moreno, and Eacuria were being held. Martin Baró left with one of the soldiers to open the side gate of the residence near the Chapel of Christ the Liberator. On the way, they passed by the guest bedroom where the angry voice of Father Martin Baró heard by witnesses suggests that Sub-Sergeant Tomás Zarpate Castillo was already holding the cook, Elba Ramos, and her daughter, Selina, at rifle point. Once inside the compound, Amaya and sub-sergeant Antonio Ramiro Abalos ordered the priest to lie down on the back lawn, where a neighbor testified that they began a kind of rhythmic whispering, like a psalmody of a group in prayer. At that moment, Lieutenant Jose Ricardo Espinosa, a graduate of the Jesuit high school across town when Father Segundo Montes was there, gave Avalos the order to proceed. This was relayed to Private Amaya, someone yelled now, and the shooting began. Espinosa testified in his extrajudicial confession that he retreated from the Jesuit residence with tears in his eyes. Eucaria, Montes, and Martin Baró were murdered with the AK-47 and Father Juan Ramon Moreno and Amando Lopez were killed by open fire. Tomas Zarpate repeatedly shot Elba and Selina until they ceased moaning, the mother's arms wrapped protectively around her daughter. At that moment, Father Lopez y Lopez emerged from the door of the residence. Seeing the corpses, he fled back into the house where he was executed by Colonel Perez Vasquez. A blood-soaked copy of Jürgen Moltmann's book, The Crucified God, was found by his body. The entire operation took about one hour. A few words by way of interpretation of this massacre. To me, Aecharia is like Moses. 
like Jesus, to university work. He, with many collaborators and under the impulse of God, led the Jesuit university out of captivity to capital towards the promised land of knowledge in service of justice and freedom. But he was not able to complete his project, and most certainly his project has not yet expanded to the ends of the earth, let alone to the United States. His life was cut short before his work was finished. Yet Aeacharia has many disciples, myself among them, who, compelled by his spirit, the same spirit of Christ, wish to continue his labor of building the reign of God in university life. We too want to liberate higher education from its conformity to the dominant pole of the scholastic ideological state apparatus. In my office, I have three posters of Ignacio Aeacharia to remind me of this purpose, and I'll pose a few final questions to the listener and to myself to consider in light of what we've covered today from Aeacharia's chapter and his life. What is the reality of the world today? What is the principal contradiction in society? How can our institutions of higher education address this social contradiction both within and without, liberating universities from oppression inside them and contributing in a university way to the liberation of the wretched of the whole earth? What have universities done for liberation? What are universities doing for liberation? And what will universities do for liberation? And are we at universities willing to take up our crosses and follow Moses, Jesus, and Aeacharia to achieve our goals? As I mentioned at the start of this show, there is so much in Aeacharia's chapter that it's simply impossible to do it justice in one show. And that's why we will continue next time with the final subsection, The Search for Christian Historical Transcendence, which, to be honest, has so much mind-blowing theological information that it deserves an episode of its own. We'll get into the precise relationship between profane history, salvation history, and the history of God. We'll think about Aeacharia's understanding of of creation, grace, sin, poverty, and spirituality. It will honestly be a whirlwind tour of a theological perspective with which very few folks are familiar, part of which is due to the fact that Aeacharia's go-to philosopher is Javier Subiri, a Spanish thinker who is also underappreciated, and it will be amazing. But for now, let's end with a prayer, that of Ricardo Falla, entitled Oración a Eyacu prayer to Eacuria, and I'll pray it in its original Spanish. En el nombre del Padre, y del Hijo, y del Espíritu Santo. Amén. Eyacu, te rompieron a balazos la cabeza. Tu cabeza entrecana quedó sobre la grama. Quedó sin pensamientos, como si fuera un cuarto sin luz. Tus enemigos te odiaban, y quisieron destruir tu gran inteligencia. Te consideraban el cerebro de la subversión dentro de la UCA y la iglesia. No saben que tus ideas están intactas y están trabajando en miles de corazones dentro del Salvador y en el mundo entero. Eyacu, te silenciaron la palabra. Te pusieron por mordaza la húmeda tierra de la madrugada. Demasiadas veces te oyeron desde la cátedra, 
de la realidad nacional en la UCA y desde los noticieros de televisión. Tu palabra era incisiva y despiadada contra la injusticia. Tu palabra quitaba las máscaras de los más sutiles engaños. Ahora, desde la más alta elevación del predio universitario, como desde un monte calvario, seguirás hablando con más fuerza. Tal vez ahora alcances lo que no pudiste en la vida, la conversión de tus enemigos. Perdónalos, porque en realidad no saben lo que se hacen. En el nombre del Padre, y del Hijo, y del Espíritu Santo. Amén. Thank you.